0: Your hands were made for greatness. Mighty hands for painting, paneling, and clicking the submit order button on HomeDepot.com to get that duvet. And these Egyptian cotton towels, delivered right to your door. Do more with decor at the Home Depot. Save up to 30% on select bedding and bath. Now at HomeDepot.com. More saving, more kinds of
1: doing. Ballot on select items online, only free delivery on select items $45 or more. Enter promo code BedBath15 at purchase for an extra 15% off. Visit HomeDepot.com for more information. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today is a topic that I'm really excited about. It's techniques that in, can increase your odds of success with IVF. Kind of like what's happening in the field that's new and, uh, and, of course, that will increase your chances of getting pregnant. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. Yes. With genetically tested embryos, a woman, uh, let's say who's 40, has the if her embryos have been tested, has the same chance of pregnancy as, let's say, a woman who is 30, and let's say who doesn't That's have her embryos? test?
0: Wow. Right. Well, guess, well yeah. if they each have a, no- a chromosomally normal embryo, that chromosomally normal embryo has very similar chance in a 30-year-old versus a 40-year-old.
1: This show is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are the national infertility education and support nonprofit. I'm Don Davenport. I'm the host and the director of Creating a Family. I'm the host of this show and the director of Creating a Family. Um, you can find us and all of our resources online at creatingafamily.org. This show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring has a free program they want you to know about. It's called My Fertility Navigator. You know the Navigator programs are all kind of enraged on every topic you can imagine right now, and uh, it seems like everything I'm hearing about Navigator programs. And I think the reason is because people are craving that one-on-one support with, you know, as much as digitally as we are involved it's nice sometimes to have a real human being to ask questions to and that really is what the the heart of the Navigator, the fertility Navigator program is. You enroll in it and once you enroll in it, you will receive a um, uh, a live human being, uh, your very own fertility navigator, who can provide important information about fertility, including they can tell you where the nearby fertility clinics are, uh, give you information about how to pay for and how to afford fertility treatment, um, as well as give you basic information about the different types of fertility treatment options that are available. You can get more information by going to their website, which is myfertilitynav, that's N-A-V, dot com. Uh So pop on over there. It's, it's a relatively new website. It's pretty snazzy. looks pretty good. So go on over there and check them out. Today, as I said, we were going to be talking about techniques that incre- can increase your odds of success with IVF. Our guest is Dr. Julie Lamb. She is a board certified reproductive endocrinologist at Pacific Northwest Fertility in Seattle and she serves as a clinical faculty at the University of Washington and We're really pleased to say she is a new board member for creating a family and so we are really proud and excited to have her serve on our board and I'm thrilled to have you Julie on this or Dr. Lamb, on this show today. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Great, thanks for having me, Don.
1: Okay, so we're going to talk about, I've got to say, advances in the field. And where this, all this idea, the germ of this idea uh, is that uh, Dr. Lam and I ran into each other at the uh, uh, Pacific uh, Coast Reproductive Symposium uh, a couple of months ago. And we were sitting in that beautiful location and we were chatting and you were saying, I need to, I have to head out because I'm doing these uh, demonstrations about uh, embryo transfer protocol and i said well you know what uh, why why are you demonstrating that in my mind that was just uh, you know that was a standard thing that everybody did and you said oh akonter aquan- that's not at all a standard thing uh we're making it more standard and hence why we're we're doing these these demonstrations and these protocols these training protocols and that absolutely sparked my i i, I had no idea and i've been involved interviewing experts for going on 11 years now, and I didn't know that that was something that was not just totally a standard protocol. So let me me make sure I understood correctly. Is embryo transfer a standard protocol that every doctor does the same way? Isn't this something you learn in school?
0: Right. Actually, it's not, Don. It's something that is more has been traditionally more of an art than a science. And although there's been several published studies, it's, uh, there's not very much known about different techniques and how they improve success rates. Until recently, um, when the American Society of Reproductive Medicine put out a consensus statement um, looking at um, success rates and like, kind of standardizing the procedure to make it more clear but it's not something that's taught in medical school, certainly, and it's not something that even as a fellow, that um, the majority of um, fellowships actually don't even teach. You observe it, um, but you don't uh, perform an embryo transfer. And that's hopefully changing, um, but, yeah, it's unusual. It's different, right?
1: Well, it was for me. I mean, I I was so surprised by it, (laughs) hence this show. So so what you're saying is that – there are, well, well, let me ask, if, does the technique that you use, and let me back up to make sure that our whole our audience gets this. All right. So in, in IVF, this is going to be the most basic IVF uh, explanation known to man uh, or woman. Uh, so the, you go through an egg retrieval. The uh, eggs are, are mixed uh, with the sperm, usually in a Petri dish. And at that point, they grow for anywhere from three to five to six days. And then uh, usually one, or perhaps two embryos are going to be transferred either at that moment, um, back at that day five or six, back into the patient, or they're frozen and then thawed and uh, and at some point in the future transferred back in. So what we're talking about is the point where the embryo is taken from either its frozen straw or from the Petri dish and put back into the woman's uterus with the expectation hope uh, that it will implant and grow for nine months and, and become a baby. Um, so are there, it came, is there evidence to say that the different type of technique you might use would result, uh, increase or decrease your odds of getting success? Is there, is, there, is there research on that?
0: Yes, actually there is. So that um, how you do the technique and whether it's performed under ultrasound guidance, there is some evidence that those kinds of things, um, improve outcomes.
1: Does it matter where it? in the uterus you ah. eject the, uh, the the embryo, I mean, how far into the uterus you go?
0: Yeah. Yeah, the goal is the middle third, but even that hadn't been well described previously until recently.
1: Interesting. So now they know that, okay, you're, you're aiming for the middle third and you're uh, I would assume ultrasound assist would be preferred, I'm guessing. Uh, right. Is it? Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: it's been shown to increase success rates, so ultrasound guidance is now part of it, and you know, not avoiding any trauma to the cervix or any bleeding and not touching the top of the uterus, all those little small nuances or points, um, there's evidence to make it more successful. So having that written down somewhere where new physicians yeah. and even physicians that have been doing it for years can reference and learn from and try to do it more consistently to give their patients the best outcome. Certainly, every physician wants their patient to have the best possible outcome.
1: Absolutely. And what you were doing at the PCRS conference was, our symposium, was training uh, new doctors coming in, those who were, had fellowships in reproductive endocrinology. W- weren't you training them there?
0: Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Actually, we were holding a seminar for anyone that wanted to um, to practice the technique on simulator models. And um, yeah, you didn't have to just be in training. Often seasoned physicians come and, you know, perfect their technique.
1: Sure. So from a patient's standpoint, I'm going to guess that few patients have ever thought about this. And uh, is this something that that uh, a patient, from a patient standpoint, what should they ask or should they uh, when they're choosing a, uh, a clinic?
0: Um, specifically around embryo transfer? That's a good yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so be I be think perfect. if your doctor, if your physician is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist, and they often have this information or have access to this information through the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. And um, one question is just asking, you know, how many have these have you performed, and what are the success rates when you perform this procedure, given somebody my age and. Um, all of those things are pretty well delineated, and the doctor will be able to tell you that. You know, if someone just does several of these a year, that's not the person you necessarily want to see. Um, well, or if they have that... a very low success rate in right. your age group.
1: Okay, but all that information is available on the Society for Assisted, Reproduct- the SART, Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology site, right. which we often refer people to. There are the SART stats, and honestly you can find it just by typing in uh, in Google or, or any of your search engine. S-A-R-T right. statistics, and it will pop up. That's the first thing that comes up. And you can uh, check your clinic out, and it will tell you specific information, not about embryo transfer protocol or techniques, but it right. will give you the uh, number of patients in your age category and the success rate. So that information So so I guess what you're saying is that it's safe to assume that the people who are uh, doing the best transfer protocols are going to have a higher success rate. So from a patient standpoint, you don't need to ask about their transfer protocol. You just need to look at the success rates. Is that a fair uh, summary? Yeah, that's a fair
0: assessment. You know, there are things that some people do to increase their success rate, like putting more embryos in, which is you know a little you can also see from that sort of website you know yes. put, increasing your success rate by putting more embryos isn't exactly what we're looking for i think we're going to talk about a little bit later the importance of single embryo transfer and one healthy baby at a time um, but yeah looking at their single embryo transfer rates and success rates with one embryo is uh, what you want to ask about
1: well that let's go ahead and talk about that because certainly one of the – and I'm using air quotes around the, world, the word advancement but because uh, I don't know if this is actually – this wasn't what I was initially thinking about when, when we were thinking – when you and I were thinking about the show. But one advancement is the significant push by the reproductive endocrinology field – Towards single embryo transfer, and that is a, a bandwagon that uh, creating a family jumped on at the very beginning and has been singing that song, to mix my metaphors, uh, for a very long time. So let's talk a little about the a single embryo transfer. And you alluded to a question that that I had. I've been trying to follow over the years what the uh, what, that we know that we want to reduce multiple births because. Uh, of the health risks uh, to the babies and the health risk to the pregnancy itself as well as to the woman. We tend as a a society to downplay the risks of twins, but the reality is clear when you look at uh, at large studies that twin pregnancies, the pregnancy itself is at a higher risk. The uh, babies are at a significantly higher risk for premature birth, and there are More and more research that indicates the long-term, lifelong even, uh, impacts, uh, subtle and not so subtle, from prematurity, as well as risks to the mom. So that's my spiel. That is my soapbox. I'm now getting off of the soapbox. But the reason that we hear from people and we hear, um, I I would like to say that we were so persuasive that most people now want single embryo transfer. I don't know that that's, uh, we definitely see an increase in people, who are, are open to it, patients, I should say. But what is the success rate? It, what's the latest research show If on the success rates when you transfer one embryo? And by success, I mean live baby um, versus uh, transferring two embryos.
0: Um, that's a great question. So I think the national average for a chromosomally screened embryo is about 60% um, live birth rate with a single embryo transfer. So we see... Uh, very similar success rate, if we put back two, it's slightly higher, but a very high chance of twins. And that, as you mentioned, is exactly what we want to avoid. Giving um, a couple or um, an individual a single healthy baby at a time is the number one goal. The biggest thing we can do to give people healthy children is to not um, give them more than one at a time. When we um, cause a a twin pregnancy, even if it 's not intentional um, just to increase success rate, those children have a higher risk of all sorts of um, medical concerns um, just related to the risk of being born or the higher risk of being born early
1: yeah and, and some of it's interesting when you follow twins and you, you follow them into their academic success and their you know how they do in school and and all sorts of of subtle things um, you can often right. tell the difference. It's not. It's not subtle. I mean, well, it may be subtle, but it's not. Right. Uh, it's certainly statistically significant. Um, unfortunately, there. Are, and I get it from a patient standpoint that often, if they've been waiting for a very long time, um, that um, it's hard to be. It's hard to think one at a time. All right. So right. that right. has certainly been an I,
0: advance. Go ahead. Right. Another thing that's totally advanced with that is I think it used to be that your best chance of success was with that fresh embryo transfer, and now there's echopoides. There's equality between fresh and frozen, and it's often better to transfer a frozen embryo. So there's not that need to put in multiple embryos fresh um, because the success rate is just as good with frozen. So you're able to put – um, one in at a time, without six, um, sacrificing the success rate of each embryo, and I think that's really important um, change that's happened in the field in the last ten years
1: it is and it's fascinating to me and doesn't uh, i'm not sure that we um, know the all the reasons, but isn't one of the reasons is that the woman's body has a chance to normalize after having been. Uh, inundated with a, a large number of medications and drugs to help produce a lot of eggs so right. that that normalizing um, allows a woman's body and that's uh, uh, so I, I guess the realization that um, uh, that uh, that 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 matters and that it could be uh, beneficial to weight um, and then right. i don't I, know um, does that go ahead
0: you know, you're absolutely right. The other thing that's changed is that fast-freezing method of vitrification that's become sta- um, the standard of care. So that quick-freezing method allows um, no damage to be done to the embryo or the egg, um, and that also is what gives the frozen embryo transfer the very high success rate.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating to me. It, it's it's so counterintuitive, <laughs> Um that that right.
0: uh, you
1: know, we don't think of anything frozen as being preferable to fresh, and yet um, in this case, uh, the evidence would suggest otherwise. Um, another major advancement, and one that's been, um, gosh, probably I don't I don't know how far back, but it's, it feels very recent, and that is the huge advances in genetic testing of embryos. Tell us some about that.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a great question. So now. Um, or for the last few years or decade, we've been able to take a few cells of the embryo that become the placenta and test them for their genetic um, complement of chromosomes so counting that chromosome number is what allows us to give the high success rates with a single embryo. So it used to be that we needed to rely on the body to do that testing. You know, if you're not pregnant from an embryo, even though it looks beautiful under the microscope and it just doesn't cause a baby, the most common reason is that it didn't have the right number of chromosomes. Um, so being able to check that is what allows us to give that really high success rate and avoid things like miscarriage or negative pregnancy tests or um, babies that have problems. Um, so that ultimately has given the success rate, even, you know, at 38 or 40, it makes it similar to someone who's in their 20s once you have a normal chromosome embryo, which is really exciting.
1: Oh, okay, say that again now. You're saying that uh, with... Gen- Let me repeat to make sure I got it. Yes. With gen- genetically tested embryos, a woman, uh, let's say, who's 40, has the if, if her embryos have been tested, has the same chance of pregnancy as, let's say, a woman who is 30, and let's say, who doesn't That's have correct. her embryos
0: tested? Wow. Right. Well, guess, well yeah. if they each have a, no- a chromosomally normal embryo, that chromosomally normal embryo has very similar chance in a 30-year-old versus a 40-year-old. So as we age, that's the component um, that becomes abnormal. So we're born with all those eggs, and as we age, the percentage of abnormal eggs increases. So screening, especially with advancing age, screening for that correct chromosomal complement is what allows us to give success rates um, from single embryo transfers to mothers of advanced reproductive age. It's very
1: exciting. It it is very exciting. I guess keeping in mind that as yeah. you age, the the odds of getting a genetically normal embryo decrease uh, as you age. Correct. So, Correct. yeah, so, I mean, there's, uh, yeah. yeah. But and keeping if in mind that find there's one. <laughs> Yeah, if you can yeah. find one, right. Yeah, and depending yep. on, so on after a certain age, them. right. Right, um, so and not that,
0: allowing the body to do the testing takes some of the stress off of your body and allows, you know, us to tell in the lab which one is most likely to make a baby.
1: Yeah, your body and your mind and your soul and everything else, right. Right, right,
0: exactly. It it takes less emotional energy when it happens outside of you and when you're not having to wait those two weeks to find out if you're pregnant. And if there's not normal ones, you can do another cycle. And, you know, you're not wondering what's wrong with your body that it didn't implant. So from um, a patient care perspective, I found that it's, um, you know, it's much easier to have a conversation with a patient about, embryos, then why, you know, why am I not pregnant from those beautiful embryos? It can look perfect under the microscope and we Mm -hmm. can put it back in and it still feels like it's somehow the one, you know, it still feels very personal and like your fault if you're not pregnant, even though I can say, you know, statistically, you know, your embryo was untested. It's most likely the embryo was abnormal it's still very, you know, of course it's very hard on women to not be pregnant. So having that externalized and outside the body and say, hey, you know, your embryos are beautiful. We just didn't find a normal one this month. Let's try again. It's a lot easier to try again when you know the reason. Um, You know the reason.
1: Well, you know, and it also is decreasing the odds of a baby, of of an embryo growing into a fetus and ultimately a baby with birth defects as well. Right, Um, right. You know, the body doesn't always... Uh, uh, is not always a good, you know, testing from, you know, some significant birth defects. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a, genetic testing of embryos has been, and gosh, it just feels to me like it's, honestly, I can remember when this we started this show way back, 11 years ago, uh, that it was, uh, none of this was even, I mean, it was, it just seems almost humorous as to how we tried to, to do genetic testing then, um, So it feels like it's been so recent. Maybe it isn't, but it sure feels that way.
0: Right. Right. And it's just improved so much over the last few years. It's really exciting.
1: Yeah, it is. It's one of the more exciting things. Let me pause to remind everybody that you are listening to Creating a Family. We are talking today with Dr. Julie Lamb about uh, techniques that can increase your odds of success with IVF. I wanted to take a moment to remind you that this show, as well as all the resources produced by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our partners. One of those partners is Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York. They are one of the largest fertility practices in the state of New York and one of the biggest in the country. By combining the latest innovations in reproductive science with compassionate and customized treatment plans, RMA of New York is able to provide the best possible care. All right, Dr. Lamb, uh, ta- we're talking about advances, and we've talked about uh, something as mundane as how you transfer, I don't, although it's really not mundane, but uh, embryos, uh, uh, and something as esoteric as, as uh, moving towards the uh, uh, single embryo transfer, and then uh, something that absolutely uh, seems so far out there, which is genetic testing of embryos, although now genetic testing doesn't seem that far out there. Let's move to talking about another big push across all medicine, it feels to me, and that is personalized treatment. But in this case, let's talk about personalized infertility treatment. What are some ways that, uh, that uh, the reproductive endocrinologist can assess the woman or the man, but in this case it's going to be usually the woman, uh, who is there, and what her individual needs are? Uh, embryo testing is certainly one of them. Um, what are some other things that uh, that ways that infertility treatment can now be personalized for that that specific woman
0: yeah that's a great question Don um, so there 's some really you know simple things just sitting down with your physician and telling your story and looking at the details of your menstrual cycle and your history and you know, all of those um, reproductive history questions really make the plan personalized to the individual, um, and I think that's a really important conversation. But there's some um, more things um, in the last few. Years that um, really personalize um, medicine to the individual, and the examples of those are, or um, a specific example is the endometrial receptivity assay, which actually looks at the gene expression in a woman's uterus to find out if it's um, susceptible to the embryo at the right time. Uh, which has been a really exciting thing in personalized medicine and reproductive healthcare
1: and is that the same thing as the window of implantation that that period of time when when your uterus is uh most receptive to implantation is is that uh is does the e r a help determine the when that time is
0: yes yes um yes, that's a good question It's mainly specifically for i v f and embryo transfer it doesn't necessarily Um, help you if you're trying individually on your own or with an insemination, but it does Mm -hmm. help in some patients, you know, in a very specific um, patient population that's having implantation failure, there's the Mm -hmm. potential that it helps us understand, you know, the genes that are expressed in that uterus and whether it's ready for an embryo, and the way we adjust that gene expression is by changing the timing of the progesterone administration. So... Um, ah. Seems like a relatively simple thing, but it's pretty amazing science. It's like your own little DNA footprint. Um, looking at that before we put an embryo back.
1: So you do the ERA test or assay, um, uh, it, it, uh, and then and then you can determine what medication to give to alter. Uh, the results, and and hold off on the transfer until we get the results that you're looking for. Am I understanding that correctly? Right.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So it's actually performed in a in a mock cycle, a mock embryo transfer cycle, where we grow the lining with estrogen, and we treat once it's um, thick enough by transvaginal ultrasound. We treat. Uh, the patient with progesterone, and then instead of transferring the embryo on the on the correct day, we actually do an endometrial biopsy, which is a little sampling of the a little tiny bit of the lining of the uterus and send that and they look at um, they look at the expression and the specific DNA fingerprint, kind of the gene expression in that uterus at that time, and it's different for different people. And making sure that that lines up with what we where they want the embryo and when it needs to implant um, is important in some patient populations so and, it, um, and is
1: this something that you do uh, typically with all patients or those patients who have had implantation failures
0: um, that 's a good question. Um, no one really knows the answer to that yet right now we 're using it in a very very specific patient population, so patients that have had implantation failure of embryos um, that were chromosomally normal that we expected to be successful that weren't. Those patients are um, the best candidates for the current patients that we're talking to about this technique. Also, um, we're starting to introduce this idea for patients that have very few embryos. So, you know, they did several cycles to get one embryo, or I recently used it for um, a cancer patient who had a bone marrow transplant and only had one embryo. So um, when it's not a renewable resource and it's their only chance of pregnancy, we want to do everything possible to make sure it's going to implant. Um, But right now I'm not – I personally am not using it for every patient, but I think there are some doctors that are at least talking to every patient about it. Um, so knowledge is power. Like when patients ask about it, we talk about it, we give patients resources, um, and it won't be long before we are talking to every patient about things like this. And and you don't know what's next. Like how are we going to um, mm-hmm. personalize medicine even further in fertility? It's a really exciting time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, that begs the question, is insurance paying for it, if you were fortunate enough to have right. insurance.
0: Right, um, right. Some of them are.
1: Uh, um, oh, good.
0: Some of or uh, will reimburse the patient for the test. Um, but oftentimes, you know, just the cycle medications are so cost prohibitive and no one wants to wait two months to do another test. And all those uh, play into the decision-making process, too. And, and yeah. And, you know, it's not... It's a pretty invasive test to go into the uterus and sample part of the lining. We try to make it sound pretty gentle, but no one wants to have that done either. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's a conversation, point. and it's yeah. very individualized for the patient about um, about whether it's right for them. So, yeah, definitely talk to your doctor about what your options are for testing and, and you know, the pros and cons of these kinds of testing for you.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, there's a. I have always been fascinated by the idea of the culture medium that we use to grow the embryos, and I really don't know the answer to the question I'm getting ready to ask. Has there has there been advances in what medium we use? It seems like it is such a fundamentally important uh, thing that we're doing, and 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 I've just is, have there been advances in the last say five years. And what the type of medium that we use and the culture and – and right. and, uh, or whether you change it or how you do it. How do you, you know, right. the, stick them in a petri dish and let them grow or do you do something different or what?
0: Yes, Uh, well, an embryologist would probably be able to answer that question more precisely than I would, but from a physician point of view, it's something that has been um, a big part of the process for many years and it used to be very proprietary and um, people wouldn't share their protocols and now there's pretty standardized medias and they're um, available commercially and those are constantly being tweaked for the best success rate and you're right. Um, Some are changed and we call that sequential media and some uh, medias, you keep the egg and emb- or the embryo in throughout that five-day, six-day culture process. Um, and so the, as far as I know, there haven't been any huge uh, revelations in the last few years. The best way to kind of ask about that is to ask about, like, blast formation rate and um, – in your clinic, and what what mm-hmm. do they see for your age group and there's a lot you know the standard deviation is wide, and it certainly how the embryo develops can be very personal um, and very individual, but that the average gives you a little bit of an idea about what the success rates are with culturing the embryos and the lab you 're right is a very important piece of all this, and choosing mm-hmm. the right media is an important decision, and that's usually made um, by the physician and the embryologist, as a, you know, as a team.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, um, we tend to not think as, as much about the embryology lab and the embryologist and, and that end of things. Um, and maybe it's just because of the way my brain works, but I'm fascinated by it. So I always, I think as patients as general often don't focus on that because they're not interacting with the embryologist or the tech- right. The people they're in, and, and you know, they're focusing on the doctor because that's whom they're they are talking with but um and there's been an i don't know if this is considered an advancement because it's relatively new we did a show on it I think it was last year uh with dr Kevin Duty but it's in vivo uh maturation in vivo culture uh, you want to explain that just kind of briefly and then we'll refer people back to that show because we talked about it for an hour but
0: uh yeah yeah that's a great topic so basically um the human body or the woman's ovary contains a kind of a purse or a collection of immature eggs And the best way we have to get them out is to mature them inside the woman's body. And to take them out and to fertilize them in the lab, they need to be mature. Um, So usually the immature eggs are discarded, um, but there's new techniques that so far are still considered experimental of maturing the eggs in in the in vitro fertilization laboratory, in the embryology laboratory. And that's certainly something that's being investigated, especially um, for cancer patients or patients Mm -hmm. um, that aren't ovulating um, or looking for in less expensive ways to undergo this process. Right now we can only get a group of eggs out um, that would normally die away in a given month. We get them to mature and remove them. Um, but if there is a more efficient way, often women have hundreds of eggs left, if not thousands, and if we could get more of those then we're more likely to find what we're looking for in a single cycle and make the process more efficient. So I think that's some of the goals of those in vitro maturation studies.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think, very yeah. do that
0: clinic, clinically currently.
1: Right. And then there is the uh, uh, another uh, technique aligned with this, if I understand it correctly, and and um, where the rather than allowing the embryo to uh, once the, the the sperm and the egg have joined and uh, and but they allow the embryo, uh, they place the embryo back into the vaginal cavity and allow rather than a petri dish. Uh, with the right. idea that that's a more, um, and, again, I'm using air quotes here, natural uh, environment, although, honestly, it, it, the vaginal cavity is different from the fallopian tubes, which is where that would right. be, but I suppose it's closer. Um, and that's another technique uh, that um, I, I think some clinics are actually utilizing now with some patients.
0: Right, right. Yes. Yeah. I don't um, don't think it's very common, but, yes, there are a smattering of clinics throughout the U.S. that are are looking at those options.
1: Yeah, looking at the options, and that one in particular uh, is is known to, um, uh, that. one of the goals is to uh, save money. Um, all right, so uh, we've been talking about, I guess, before we leave the all-important embryology lab, uh, anything else you can think of that's happened, let's say, in the last five years, uh, that uh, has resulted in um, uh, increased uh, birth rates. I, I'll throw one out that I don't really know if it falls within the five-year, but uh, uh, air filtration, I, again, talk about mundane. Um, but I read a study, or it was discussed, I think at ASRM, it feels like quite a few years ago, but perhaps within the five-year window of, of, of different successes for labs that uh, use certain types of air filtration. Uh, did you hear that? Is that, a, is that something that, uh, that right. you know anything yes. about?
0: Yes, air filtration is something we talk about on a regular basis in an IVF <laughs> clinic. <laughs> um, yes. yes, it's a very important part of the process, and you know, no one does any painting or polishing or cleaning in the embryology <laughs> laboratory ever. Um, because that, those toxins and all those normal things of everyday life can affect embryo development so um, it's a huge um, it's a huge topic of conversation and something that uh, we're really careful about even if we paint in the clinic we only do it during which is you know very separate from the embryology lab- laboratory and um, it's done at a time when there's no embryos in the lab and at a time where we can spend lots of time filtering the air before we, we start up again
1: Fascinating. I mean, that really—you think uh, about that—it's just stuff you don't think about.
0: Right. I am, I am right. so thankful for the people lab doing, is Yeah. Yeah. Right? Is positive pressure, so nothing can ever flow in. Everything is flowing out, and all sorts of filtration systems keeping that air quality as perfect as possible in there.
1: You know, when people and I, and I totally get uh, the complaint, but when people complain about the the cost of IVF, it's you have to think through. All of these things we're talking about, you know it's all of them are important, and all of them cost uh so it's I, I find it just absolutely fascinating right. Um, yeah right,
0: yes, um, unfortunately, all of health care is very costly, and
1: yeah,
0: uh, you know we're not used to paying for a lot of our own health care. we're used to it being covered by insurance, so when it's not Bingo. It's, it, it's expensive, you're right, it's terrible.
1: You're right, and when we're not used to paying, and that so when we are having to pay out of pocket. Uh, but that's a whole another soapbox I could get on, but uh, yes. I won't. For the, for the for the sake of the of, of this show, I uh, and so we don't want to lose everybody. If I it, uh, I'm limited by our staff to just one soapbox per show, uh, and I used <laughs> it up for single embryo transfer, so I'm going to have to move on. Yes, I now. think
0: that's great. <laughs> All show yeah. boxes are very important for our for your <laughs> listeners.
1: Yeah, oh, there you well. Yeah, but important, but maybe not quite uh, entertaining. The uh, right. uh, have there been any? Uh, uh, let's talk a little about egg retrieval techniques. Um, okay. And have there been any anything new that we need to know about in in the egg retrieval? Start us off by kind of filling us in on on yes. what's standard done and anything yeah. that's new and different.
0: Yes. So an egg retrieval is when we go in and get – it's a procedure that's done at the end of an IVF uh, cycle where we go in and get the eggs outside of a woman. So a woman can't ejaculate her eggs. Like a a guy can give a sperm much more easily. It's another gender discrepancy, Don, where it's much more (laughs) difficult (laughs) to get eggs. Um, So the eggs are found in the follicles, and once at the exact right time, we go in and get them. And the way we do that is with a tiny little needle, kind of like the needle we use to draw blood, Um, but it's long, and it goes transvaginally, and it's... um, ultrasound guided so we see the ultrasound uh, by ultrasound um, just like you would measure your follicle in a fertility clinic Um, and at the end of the probe there's a tiny little needle and it goes into the ovary through the top of the vagina and sucks out that fluid and with the fluid in the follicle comes the little microscopic egg um and so that's what a retrieval is. And the technique um has changed some over the years. I think the needle's gotten smaller. It used to be a double bore needle where they could flush the follicle and now we just aspirate the follicle and the success rates are very good retrieving those eggs. Um but the actual technique itself probably hasn't changed very much. So you get small like as-
1: yeah. you, you you suck out the fluid and you're hoping it usually or uh, that there's more than one yes. egg. How do you separate yeah. the egg at that point from the fluid?
0: Yes. So there, um, the little tiny egg goes through the end of the needle and through a um, tubing into a um, little, not a petri dish, but a little test tube. And the test tube is in a warmer that's kept at body temperature. It's very important that the deg- the egg temperature doesn't fall even a degree. It's very important that they're kept at um, body temperature and they're given to an embryologist that's in the room with us and our embryologist has like an incubator like you would see a NICU baby be in, a tiny little preemie baby but instead of a baby in there it's your little tiny eggs and that allows them to temperature control it um, and they have a microscope right there looking at the eggs in the retrieval room with us and they're pulling them right out of the fluid under the microscope
1: cool and then Isn't it replaced, exciting? I know. <laughs> and then they're either frozen uh, if, if you're freezing eggs or they are right, uh, right. allowed to uh, combine with sperm or I suppose uh, you, right. uh, it, also inject it with sperm if you're using right. intercy- intercytoplasmic sperm injection. Yeah, it is kind of cool. But nothing nothing new on the horizon that's exciting and, and uh, right. uh um, yeah. Okay. Well, that's
0: yeah. cool. It's a pretty quick process. Patients go to sleep for it. No one really likes a needle in their vagina, so that's. But it's not a big incision or a big surgery. It's just a small procedure.
1: Right. Yeah. And you're out for a very short time, generally.
0: Right. Right. And you wake up and feeling good that it's behind you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And hopefully, <laughs> uh, hopefully getting good news. Hopefully, of, you never uh,
0: have but, to do it again.
1: Exactly. Yeah. All right, we got a uh, we got two questions that are, are similar. I'm going to read them both, and they they both talk about there are both questions about uh, why some doctors use one protocol and some use another. The first is from Lulu, and she says, "I get that treatment has to depend on your diagnosis and condition, but does it also depend on what the doctor is used to and prefers? How standardized is fertility treatment? Not sure if that's a good thing or not." And then another similar question from Aaron: Why do clinics have such different approaches? For example, some docs feel strongly about using omnitrope, testosterone, etc. before stimulation, while others are staunchly against it. So, uh, yeah, it, I thought both questions were, were similar in who decides what the protocol is going to be, and is it only based on the diagnosis, or or, or is it? Are we moving towards more standardization or less?
0: Um, That's an excellent question. I think it's a very personalized approach for each individual patient, but also individualized by each individual doctor and clinic. Um, The according to you know the first question, we're picking a protocol. Um, based on the best outcomes and for the patient and we you know our clinic tries to be very evidence based and um, based on the current research, we don't want patients paying a lot uh, you know toward the second question about you know adding kind of alternative therapies such as growth hormone um, or testosterone. there's some alternatives that um, are controversial my guess is a good way to put it and some doctors feel like they definitely see a different success rate when they use that and other doctors feel like there's not enough evidence um, for that specific treatment and that, that you know each of these medication is expensive and really expensive and some of them have specifically the testosterone some untoward side effects mm-hmm. um, that um, can be really bothersome. So without um, an evidence that it's improving outcomes, being live birth rates or number of eggs, uh, a lot of us feel like it's not in the best interest of the patient to give give them. But that being said, I mean, a lot of us are open to conversation, and if a patient really wants to try a kind of an alternative therapy, I'm definitely in, um, interested in hearing their thoughts and having it be a discussion and a conversation um, about the pros and cons and what might be best for that patient. So it goes back to just really personalizing the medical treatment um, and the medical care, and, and same thing with the protocols. So the specific protocol is very patient-dependent, um, but you're right, it's also very clinic-dependent. Um, but basically each protocol is doing the same thing, done it's growing the eggs inside the woman's body. And we put a lot of weight on the protocol and the differences in protocols, but pretty much your ovaries do what they want to do, and we try to tweak a lot of things, and sometimes it doesn't make any difference
1: well yeah and
0: and Everybody well, as gives I read, us what it wants to give us yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and as I read um the questions as I was thinking of those questions, I'd like to, you you said you know the uh, your clinic focuses on evidence based, and it makes me think in terms of that's why we send people to send patients to look at the, the SART stats because right. they're then you can compare because as a patient, you don't. Most of us don't have the medical knowledge, even if we've studied this. Right. Uh, right. Don't have the medical knowledge of being able to say, "I think I should be having uh, slightly more progesterone, or slightly less, or okay. I really think I need." That's beyond us. I mean, you have gone to boatloads years of school. I mean way more school than than I want to go to. And uh to learn this and so it's not up to I don't want to question it but that's where the stats come in because they're not going to lie. Right. I mean so it's it's You can compare and say, I don't know what you're doing protocol wise, but I can look and see that your success rate, and again, you need to, you need to look at it for your age group because that matters, but I can see that your success rate is not as high as others, uh, or, or is higher or whatever, whatever clinic you're looking at, and you can make your decision based on that. Is that a fair thing to do to to you, to staff that way?
0: Yes, there's good and bad about that. You know, we that's the best marker we have at the current time, but it's not perfect either. You know, I often let a patient go through the process that has a very low success rate because it's her only chance of having a genetic mm-hmm. child, Where and often these patients are turned away from many other clinics.
1: Um, and Good so point. that
0: you know doesn't improve our start statistics, um, but mm-hmm. it's very you know individual patient care is is more important to me than what is reported on that national website. Um, same thing mm-hmm. with single embryo transfer. There's clinics that put two embryos in every time to try to improve that number on the website. So yes, it's the best marker that we have, but it has you know at, just like anything, it has flaws too. Um, but yes, it's always good to talk with your doctor and ask your question. If my patient's worried about the level of progesterone or the protocol, I want to know that and I want to explain it to them and answer their questions. It's really important for me to have a team approach with a patient and have you know have them feel listened to and heard and and take what they're worried about into consideration and talk about it.
1: Yeah, we did uh a creating a family show a number of years ago when the new uh the formatting of the uh of the sart stats changed and mm-hmm. there are um, there are ways that you can assess you can't look at any just one statistic but uh you mm-hmm. raise a good point there are definitely clinics and an example of that would be clinics who won't accept a woman over the age of 40 or even 40 or over uh, there are right. clinics that won't accept a woman over 40 or over unless she agrees uh d- uh to do a donor egg even with the first cycle and there uh, now those clinics when we speak with them they say well we're doing that because you know there's no reason to you know her success is her success rate is going to be so low it's it's wrong to do but right. that for certainly for some women knowing that they tried assuming they've got the money for it um uh right. they want to try and and yes that would result in a, uh, a lower overall uh, statistics of success for the clinic who says, I respect your desire to try, and, and I'm going to tell you what your success rates right. are, and but allow you to make the decision. So, yeah.
0: Right. Uh, right. I do so refer people back. Difference.
1: It does. And so I refer people back to that show. Uh, it's uh, the show is titled something with new IVF statistics. Analyzing how to analyze new I, the new IVF statistics, or may just say right. IVF statistics. Go back to that because uh, we actually it seems overwhelming when you look at the SART, but we uh, analyzed and broke it down to the couple that really mean the most that you need to look at and that you can compare those, and it's truly not overwhelming. Um, we need to do a blog or something on that. Uh, we, yeah. we actually have that information in. Uh, we have a guide on how to choose an infertility clinic, uh, and you can oh, get that's that one. It is, and we did, a, uh, we did screenshots that walk you through literally step-by-step step of which of the statistics are the most important for you to analyze uh, when comparing clinics, uh, trying to take some of the variability out. Um, for, uh, clinics who, who might be trying to, uh, up their success rates, but, but it's not in the, you know, for instance, you need to look at, uh, the percentage of twin births, the percentage of, of procedures that have, uh, double embryo transfer. Things like that are just as important as success. So, um, anyway, that, uh, that guide you can get going to our website, creatingafamily.org, uh, and hover on online resources and click on guide or hover over resources, rather, and click on guide, and it pops right up, and you can access it there. It's, uh, it's got a lot of other uh, great information there as well. All right, right. let me let me take a, a break and, and reintroduce you. We're talking today about techniques that can increase your odds of success with IVF with Dr. Julie Lamb. And uh, I wanted to remind everybody that this show and uh, everything we do here at Creating a Family, we're a nonprofit, and we depend upon the professional community for our support, and uh, one of them, and these are people who believe. These are not people, organizations who believe in our mission, which is to provide unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. And uh, we couldn't exist without them. And one of them is uh, Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in combination with the DNA of prospective sperm donors. And by doing that, they can provide the client with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. And in addition to donor sperm services, they also have a full range of andrology and fertility preservation services as well. All right, um, we got a couple of questions that I'm going to kind of uh, lump together, and I'm, I'm glad we got these because this is what people or patients are actually wondering about <laughs> because we hear it a lot in our support group. Uh, the first one I'll read is from Tanya. She says, I begin injections at the end of the month. Is there anything I should do or know during that time? Also, I will have four weeks between egg removal and transfer. Anything I should know and do during that waiting period?
0: Yeah. yeah, so that's a great question. So certainly taking care of yourself like you're pregnant during that time of growing the eggs and preparing your body for transfer. So, you know, eating health, healthy foods, lots of fruits and vegetables, avoiding toxins, avoiding things like processed foods, um, and, you know, not not drinking and not smoking and taking your prenatal vitamin, all of those things make your body um, as perfect as possible. Um, for getting ready for a transfer. But one important thing that I think we often forget is just taking really good care of ourselves. So building up your emotional energy in case it doesn't work and um, you know, to make the process more um, – it's never going to be easy, but more tolerable when you take good care of yourself and pay attention to your emotional and physical needs – Um, with whatever way you can, whether it's going to yoga or doing some mindful meditation or getting enough sleep and eating the right foods, all of those um, increase your um, ability to handle the process and tolerate the outcome and keep trying because each individual egg and embryo has a good chance. And um, being in the right place to um, get ready for that improves your odds and improves your ability to keep trying.
1: Yeah, and I would throw in uh, if you're partnered, uh, have a date night with your partner uh, Mm -hmm. and and go out for a girls' night out. uh, You know, cultivate your friendships. uh, Don't stop living your life. uh, Right. We we so often do stop living our life when we're so focused on one thing, which is an important thing to focus on but enjoying your life in between can give you the emotional reserves uh to to stay the course and make it through the uh through the process because not every transfer is right. going to be successful and you don't want to be so worn out that you're not able to you we're we're certainly focused here on the, uh creating a family on reducing the dropout rate and that's and that is such a uh, uh the we did a show, uh, was it last week or week before, with the author of a it's a really popular book. I think it's one of the New York Times bestsellers. It's called Mommy Burnout. And there was something fascinating. Now, she was talking about parenthood, but it, she talked about the importance of female friendships. It was aimed at mothers, so she was focusing on, on females, and about the amount of research that exists uh, about how important friendships are in, uh, for, for coping, you know, for just general mental health um, so, having read that book, it's certainly <laughs> up number one yes. in my head about you know focusing on that.
0: Yes, it's so easily easy to become isolated when you're going through fertility care, and I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things I encourage patients the most is surround yourself with people that support you and and can help you through this. Um, at the end of the yeah. day you need those relationships and at the you know hopefully you're when by the completion of your fertility treatment you have a a family and a baby but even if you don't you have to have a good marriage and a good sex life and friendships and mm-hmm. all those and like who you are and so working on that along the way is so important
1: it is it is and also as you point out often overlooked yeah because we become obsessed right. quite frankly yeah all yeah, right And we have a, lot. a It is a lot. It's a lot to um, – it's hard to do um, self-care in the midst of all of this. Um, We have a question from Erin. Is there anything I can do to improve my egg quality? She doesn't tell us where she is in the process, so I don't know the answer to that.
0: Um, So there's not a lot you can do to improve egg quality. It's based on age, really. Um, But there's a book am I allowed to say a name of a book sure absolutely. I think it's please called please. um um it's about the egg or starts with the egg, and that book um, I can't even tell you the author, but it just really systematically goes through evidence. Based, approach, based on research of one patient's journey uh, through the process and what she did to try to improve her egg quality. And it goes through kind of the toxins in her life she eliminated with facial products and cleaning products and household products and, um, and then some evidence-based approach to supplements like CoQ10 and what she did and feels like um, increased her egg quality. Um, so there's certainly... Some flaws with that kind of approach is that, you know, when a study is published that found a difference and maybe an improvement in pregnancy rates, um, it's published. But when a study doesn't find results, there it's not published. So there's some bias in what's published, and then we, you know, collect all the published studies and say these make a difference. But um, but usually I, I try to encourage people that it doesn't, it's not keeping you from getting pregnant. All those things in your life, it's good to clean that up and to pay attention. But oftentimes you you know, you know, get all that information, it's a little overwhelming. So it's important to know it's not the cause of your infertility. But I totally agree when we're doing everything possible to improve our chances of success with this, with this process, then we do look at those things that might have an impact on egg quality.
1: And the title of that book is It Starts With The Egg, how the Science of Egg Quality Can Help You Get Pregnant Naturally, Prevent Miscarriage, and Improve Your Odds in IVF. And the author is Rebecca Fett. Um, it was published in 2014, right. so four years ago. Uh, but I would think uh, there's probably been some studies that have come out in the right. in the interim, but um, that's only four years ago, so that's not... Uh, that's right. not,
0: not very long. Um, it's an yeah. excellent book. It's actually very good, and I've read it several times, and I have patients that really like it. I do have patients that you know, get a little overwhelmed when reading it. It's a lot of information. Uh, but when you're looking specifically on, like, what are all the things that people try to do to increase egg quality, that's a great resource.
1: Okay. Yeah. No. I'm glad I. Uh, I'm glad you told me about. It. Yeah. We'll have that and we'll add that to our.
0: Yeah. Uh, suggested. Great question. Thanks for asking.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Erin, for asking. Um, so, what in the past uh, when we've discussed this? Uh, it's with other experts, it's the advances always felt like, advances in, in the treatment of infertility always felt like they were more successful, more focused on younger women rather than older women. Um, now, genetic testing is certainly, we talked about that at the beginning, that certainly has uh, altered the, uh, the odds for older women. What as, as far as is is it all is genetic testing really the whole ball of wax as far as success for uh, by older we let's say thirty eight or up um, are is the are we not seeing the increase in, in pregnancy rates um, in that age group has that remained rather stubbornly low or are they increasing?
0: Um, yes, yeah, so certainly the the success rates are increasing in that in that advanced reproductive age success group. Um, We certainly see that population growing when the national statistics, you know, when we just looked at all those population statistics that came out, big article in the New York Times that birth rates are falling and the only group that it's increasing in is at age 40 to 44. (laughs) Um, And Mm -hmm. I don't think necessarily that's advancements um, in egg quality or better egg quality with older it's just more of us trying at advanced reproductive mm-hmm. age and more of us having support and resources to try and genetic testing um, and insurance coverage and then all of us just you know delaying pregnancy while we pursue, mm-hmm. you know, pursue the right partner or pursue a degree or, or complete things mm-hmm. in our career so it, certainly mm-hmm. those reproductive years um, are changing a little bit, and we you know it's very common fifty percent of women over forty need some kind of assistance getting pregnant um, so that that all impacts and plays a role in in the higher success rates in those age groups that we've seen in the last few years mm-hmm.
1: yeah when i um was just listening to a podcast and I wanted to jump through the uh, um, the uh, the the guest was saying that uh the success rates are so large now that that really our biological clock is no longer uh relevant that you, that you could postpone ah! I thought I know I thought no I think her point it, she was trying to say that if that that the uh postponing is is uh, postponing child uh birth or uh pregnancy is is inevitable and but what she didn't say was Yes, but if you have the money if in i v f and even right. then it's not going to be always our donor egg. I'm yeah, so i I know i i this literally was this week, and I was like, I wished I could you know jump through the airwaves and say no that that i, I right. hear your your bigger point is trying to reassure women, but don't reassure them with false information um, right uh, the biological I think it's really important.
0: Yeah, to learn about your biological clock, to learn about your fertility. Certainly egg freezing isn't right for everybody, but it's an option. Um, just being aware that it's not as easy to get pregnant as, as we get older. And I think uh, there's this misconception that IVF can just fix things for women yeah. in the late 30s, and that's not the case.
1: Yes, that isn't the case. Uh, and it's also not the case, it also uh, overlooks the fact that infertility treatment is not inexpensive and many many women uh do not have insurance that covers it so i always feel like i have to say that because i we know people who are uh, in our support group all the time who are really struggling with the financial aspect of it so um anyway it's i yeah i feel like that does a disservice to um to all of them well, right, Dr. Julie Lamb. More thank about you so education. Much. Oh yeah, exactly. More, but you know that surprised right. me. that somebody i trying to remember. Yeah, I really think we're making progress in that area, though. I really do. Uh, right. You, you don't hear people say that that much anymore, um, or maybe I just want to believe that we're making progress. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, that that's possible as well. Well, Dr. Julie Lamb, thank you so much for being on the Creating a Family show today. I have. Thoroughly enjoyed. I always thoroughly enjoy talking with you. And, uh, again, uh, thank you. Uh, I know that uh, there's going to be people who want to reach out to you to get more information, and you can uh, Pacific Northwest Fertility is where Dr. Uh, Lamb practices, and that website is pnwfertility.com, P N W fertility.com keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation you need to work with your infertility professional thank you guys for being here and i will see you all next week right now at the home depot you'll save up to 35 percent off appliance special buys like a ge appliances top load washer and dryer pair with deep clean and deep rinse options, a reliable heavy-duty agitator and four precise water levels, just 478 each. Wash, dry, save, repeat. Today is the day for doing with Spring Black Friday savings now at The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. US only. Was pliers last Easter store for details valid through April 17th. Come to The Home Depot this month and you'll learn a thing or two. Actually, three, with three free do-it-yourself workshops. Learn how to design and care for your container garden by selecting the best soil and aesthetically arranging your plants. Learn how to install tile flooring, even how to keep your outdoor deck and patio space in the best shape possible. See, it's never too late to learn something new. Register today at homedepot.com workshops for a do-it-yourself workshop near you. Only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing.